If you're visiting with us today and the music sounds a little high-pitched and a lot more soprano in the singing than you expected, that's because many of our men are away on a men's trip, including Father Alex. So if you came trying to find Father Alex, he's not here. He's, he's risen to the mountains, I guess. Um, well, this is uh, Christ the King Sunday. And, uh, well, just so you know, uh, Christ the King Sunday is... Um, it was always either the Sunday before Thanksgiving or the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And recently, it's also been the week of the men's hiking trip. And what that means is that the low guy on the totem pole preaches on Christ the King Sunday. So uh, take notes, Deacon Bob, for next year. And so I've had a lot of experience preaching on Christ the King Sunday. Um, last year, you might remember, in fact, you probably do, I asked for joy to the world to be sung as the procession in. It didn't go over very well. It wasn't well received. I, I guess I get it. We're already hearing Christmas songs in the stores already, aren't we? Why do they do that? Nobody likes it. This last week I was in a store and there are two workers there and, and they've got the Christmas music going and one silly song, I don't even remember what it was, some silly song came in and one of them goes, ugh. And the other one said, it's going to be a long holiday season. But Christ the King Sunday is uh, it's only about 100 years old. It was added to the church calendar about 100 years, uh, about 100 years ago. Um, and really, it's an introduction to Advent. And it's to explain what Advent is all about. And A Joy to the World, in fact, isn't a Christmas song. It's an Advent hymn. It's not about a little baby in a manger. It's about a king who is ruling over the entire world. Um, I've also preached twice, I think, on the theme that... Um, that as an American, I have a hard time understanding what it means to have a king. Because whatever Jesus is, he's not president or senator or congressman or governor or county commissioner or something like that. And, um, well, I've hit that a couple of times. But it's really hard to have fun with this passage because this is a difficult passage to preach through for Christ the King Sunday because today the king's taken his throne and the throne is a cross and his crown is a crown of thorns. Do we have the slide for the Orthodox cross? There we go. I brought this as a backup just in case, although I had full faith, Mr. Kirby, that you would come through for me. I brought this just in case. Um, quite a while back now, uh, I was up in Pennsylvania visiting my wife's relatives, and she has a nephew named Cody, and he was about 10 years old then. And we were just hanging, hanging out at, at his house, and he drew this, and he handed it to me, and he said, do you know what that is? And I said, yes, that's an Orthodox cross. I said, where have you seen it? And he said, at my grandpa's house. He has a whole bunch of them. And his mother said, his grandfather, the one that he was talking about, is, a Russian, is Russian Orthodox. And this is the Orthodox cross, what you see on the screen there, the Orthodox cross. It's specifically the Russian Orthodox cross, but in the United States, even the Greek Orthodox use it because some Slavic Orthodox worship with them, okay. And uh, I said, I, I, he said that, he, I, and I said, do you know what it means? Do you know why Orthodox uh, draw the cross like that? And he, he said, no. And I said, well, when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified on the cross, and they put a board over his head saying that he was the king. 
And so when you look at the cross, you see Jesus crucified, but he's also the king. And down here, this is like the balance on a scale. Do you know what I mean? And Cody said, yeah. And I said, well, there's two thieves who are crucified next to him. And one of them looked at the scene and said, yes, he is a king. And one of them looked at the scene and said, no, he's just some guy we can make fun of. And when you see Jesus on the cross, that means you have to make a decision. Is Jesus just some guy you can make fun of, or is Jesus the king? I think that made an impression on him. There's a decision to be made about the claim nailed to the cross above Jesus' head. Is Jesus king or not? And there he is, taking his throne, taking his cross, right on the top of Mount Zion. In the early part of the Old Testament, it's called Mount Moriah. It's the same mountain. It's the same place where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice his son. I preached on that passage several months ago, but I hope you remember, why does Abraham go along with this? Why doesn't he argue with God? Because he had expected it all along. Because he comes from a people where child sacrifice is pervasive. From a particular city in Ur, which sacrificed children to the moon goddess. And Abraham had expected this all along. Now, at the same time, he had hope that God would raise Isaac from the dead, but he had expected he was going to have to kill his son. That's what you do in the place where Abraham grew up. In fact, unless something very strange happened to his father, Abraham would have seen his father take one of his brothers and sisters, slit the throat, butcher the body, and sacrifice his brother or sister to the gods. I preached on that theme at St. Christopher's down in Crystal River once, and a woman right in the middle of the sermon said, was, was so shocked by that, she said, why didn't they love their children? And they had to say, of course they loved their children. That's the whole point of child sacrifice. That's the whole point of sacrifice. You have to take something you love and sacrifice it because the fear of the gods outweighed the love they had for their children. Well, you'll remember that Abraham tells Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb in fact, what does Abraham do after the angel makes the dramatic appearance, but he turns around and he sees a ram with his horns tangled up in some briars. If you picture that, the ram is wearing a crown of thorns. It's a picture of what's going to happen on that same mountain. Well, here we have the story of the penitent thief. In Christian tradition, he's called Dismas. That's not found in the Bible, but he's called Dismas or St. Dismas. If you see a reference, you read in a novel and you see a reference to St. Dismas Chapel, that's usually an Anglican chapel in a prison in England. The chapels are named after this penitent thief who accepts his punishment, but he finds Jesus. Well, the story of these two thieves is told to us in all four of the Gospels, but only in Luke do we have the story of his repentance and his recognition of Jesus as the king. It's only in Luke. And this is all we have. Looking at this brief Hardly a paragraph. We might have wished for another perspective, but this is what we have. And it might seem brief and not telling us very much, but I think you'll find by the time we're done with it that there's all kinds of information packed in these sentences. Well, our whole passage contains so many paradoxes and ironies and plot twists that I don't even think we could list them all out. Jesus has been accused of blasphemy, and when he's accused of blasphemy, the ones accusing him are blaspheming him. They're the ones who are committing blasphemy. He's mocked as a king when he is a king. He can't save himself. 
Although he saved others, they mock him. But as he hangs there, no, he doesn't save himself. And yet because he doesn't save himself, he ends up saving others, including the criminal crucified right next to him. He's innocent and righteous, but he's executed by the guilty. Justice becomes injustice. He's cursed by his enemies who hate him, but his father who loves him has cursed him infinitely more by putting the curse of sin and death on him. And there's another irony just a few sentences later that the Jewish leaders want him dead so they can go get on with the celebration of Passover. The Passover points to what just happened. The Jews want to get on with the slaying of the lambs that can never take away sin while there they've rejected the one true lamb of God who alone can take away the sin of the world. He's the one who gives life and who is life, and yet he's dying. But he's dying so that those who are spiritually dead will receive life. And one such spiritually dead sinner is hanging next to him. But God's going to miraculously, sovereignly, powerfully, transformationally change this man. He's going to give life to this one thief, even as the thief is taking his last breath. Dismas, I'll call him. That's the traditional name. This one thief comes to Jesus. And he comes to Jesus because Jesus wouldn't save himself. Because he doesn't save himself, he's able able to save others. That's exactly the opposite of what those who mocked him assumed. Their perception was twisted and they were wrong. The whole scene was feeding this twisted perception of what was going on. But there's one man, one man, in spite of everything that's been going on around him, that the light dawns on him. And life comes out of death. Spiritual life comes to him when he's physically dying. And that's Dismas, this penitent thief. Matthew, Mark, and John tell us that both thieves mocked Jesus. Luke starts with just one thief mocking Jesus in verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him. Are you not Christ? Save yourself and us. Now remember, going back to verse 32, there are two thieves, two criminals who are led away to be put to death. The Roman soldiers marched them to the place of crucifixion. And historians of Roman crucifixion tell us that each of them would be preceded by a soldier carrying a whiteboard, painted white, called a titulus, which is just Latin for title, and it carries the crime for which they've been committed. So one thief is being led by a soldier carrying a board that says thief. Jesus is led by a soldier carrying a board that says the king of the Jews. We're told in one of the gospel accounts that this is written in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. Apparently that was unusual so that everybody would know this is the man who claimed to be king of the Jews. Well, Matthew and Mark tell us in their parallel accounts that both thieves have joined into the comedy. They've joined into the mockery and to the blasphemy. Even though they're hanging on the cross enduring the same suffering that Jesus is enduring physically, even though they're being tortured and dying a death of excruciating agony, they're able to muster up enough energy to hurl abuse and blasphemy at Jesus. Alfred Edersheim, a historian of New Testament times, writes that it wasn't uncommon in accounts of crucifixions to have accounts of, of criminals mocking each other and abusing each other, insulting each other as they're hanging there. It's all part of the sordid game. But in the midst of all this mockery, one of the mockers, Dismas, this thief, all of a sudden grows silent. And we only have one criminal left hurling abuse at him. Something's happened 
to Dismas, something's happened to one of these thieves. He achieves a clarity and a perception of truth and reality that he hadn't experienced just a moment before. Something has happened. All of a sudden, he turns to his friend and he rebukes him for doing what he had just been doing. What's happened? Well, I'll tell you what's happened. A miracle has happened. A divine, sovereign miracle has happened to this thief. There's no other explanation. That's how salvation works. It's a miracle. It's not always as dramatic as we see with Dismas, this thief here, but sometimes it is dramatic. Think about the Apostle Paul. St. Paul is knocked off his horse, and by the time he hits the ground, he has a completely different view of who Jesus is. Others of us, this confirmation, conversion isn't so dramatic. I've heard a testimony of a man here at Servants. I'm not going to embarrass him. And I, I, I said to him once, uh, when you kept getting knocked off your horse, you just kept getting back on, didn't you? And he laughed. And I hope you have a chance sometime to hear his, his testimony because you think, wow. And then he finally listened to God. No, he got back on the horse and rode off. Then God knocks him off again. And now, now we're going to hear how he came to Jesus. Nope, he gets back on the horse, rides off again until finally he realized my life is such a mess. I need Jesus well, this thief is a wicked man. But all of a sudden, in a moment, he's dramatically transformed. He goes from blaspheming Jesus to being horrified at hearing someone else blaspheme Jesus. His whole perception of who Jesus is is completely changed. And it's changed miraculously. The other criminal has no such change. He's hanging there, hurling abuse at Jesus with the same mocking sarcasm the rulers are using. Aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Messiah? Well, save yourself and save us. <clears throat> Excuse me. It must have shocked that mocking thief to hear from the other side of Jesus, his friend, his partner in crime, in verse 40, who answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This must have been a shock to the other thief who was hurling the abuse. Dude, what happened to you? What happened to you since you were nailed up here? Just a minute ago, you were mocking him too. What happened to you? The transformed man finds the taunts coming out of his companion repulsive and frightening. And he had just been saying the same things. And what this man says is the evidence of a changed heart and an evidence that a miracle has occurred to him. First of all, he becomes very, very aware of God and of the fear of God. Then he openly acknowledges his own sin. Then he confesses the sinlessness of Christ. And then he affirms Christ's messiahship and his saviorhood. It's an amazing thing. In just a few sentences, in only a heartbeat, he realizes these four things. It's a miracle. And Dismas cries out to his partner in crime, do you not even fear God? The first evidence that God is doing the work of conversion in Dismas, this thief, is that he comes to a fear of God. I really love Father Alex's illustration of the way he pictures the fear of God, and I've come to picture it myself. The fear of God like the fear of the ocean. On the one hand, the ocean is beautiful, it's powerful, but it's also scary. And it's dangerous. At the same time, it's beautiful. And at the same time, it's dangerous. It's deathly dangerous. 
Have you ever been caught in a riptide? I have. I don't go swimming very much anymore. That's scary. You're out there having fun at the beach. That's what you do at the beach. And then all of a sudden, you start to feel something pulling you out. Look at what this man is concerned about. He's not asking Jesus to get him off the cross. He's not trying to find someone who can save him from his physical death. What's he concerned about? He wants to be saved from divine judgment. He realizes that his real problem is not what's happening to him on earth. It's what's going to happen to him when he comes to the throne of God. He's been raised to know the laws of God, to understand God, God's holiness, God's law, to be obedient to God's law, but he's a violator of God's law. He's an open violator of God's law. He's a known violator of God's law. He's a tried and convicted violator of God's law. And here he makes a deathbed confession that he's a sinner. He's dying a death that is just, and that's what he says. But the law of human beings is just a reflection of the law of God. And if this is what men do to you when you break the laws of man, then what is God going to do to him for breaking the laws of God? And all of a sudden he has clarity about law and guilt and sin and judgment. He knows he's guilty. And how does he know that? Because he's convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's made aware that what he's getting from a human judge is only a small sampling of what he deserves from a divine judge. The message of salvation, the message of the gospel, is that you're a violator of God's law and that you're headed for eternal punishment under the wrath of God and you'd better fear God. Now, I know that sounds harsh to our ears. It's not seeker-friendly to use Christian terms, right? But it's not at all friendly not to warn seekers that if you're seeking after God, you should know that you violated God's laws and you'd better develop a fear of God. But then, then Dismas believes in Christ. The things that he says about Christ are very brief, but they're really stunning. At the end of verse 41, he does what a sinner must do. He compares himself with the perfection of Christ. We're getting exactly what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He moved from an assessment of his own condition to an assessment of Jesus and Jesus' condition. And that's what happens in a true conversion. Dismas goes beyond saying Jesus isn't guilty of the crime for which he's being crucified, but he says something bigger than that. He says he's done nothing wrong. Dismas somehow knows. How does he know? He's been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Dismas is hanging on the cross as a sinner who's getting what he deserves next to someone who's righteous and getting what he doesn't deserve. But he recognizes the righteousness of Jesus. And this, then, then Dismas speaks to Jesus in verse 42. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What is Dismas asking Jesus for here? Forgiveness. He's just said, I, I stand under divine judgment, but I want you to bring me into the kingdom anyway. How can I come into the kingdom of the Messiah if I'm not forgiven? He realizes that he needs to be forgiven. And what would bring forgiveness to Dismas's mind? But what he had just heard just before this, Jesus had cried out to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
He recognizes that Jesus is righteous and that Jesus is a source of forgiveness and grace and mercy. If he recognizes that if Jesus is able to forgive those who are crucifying him, surely they can, he can forgive me. If Jesus can ask his Father to forgive those who are crucifying him while they are crucifying him, surely there's mercy and grace for me. And then he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He's got the Old Testament right. He knew the Messiah would come in the end of the age gloriously and establish a kingdom, fulfilling all the promises to Abraham, all the promises to David, fulfilling all the promises that the prophets had promised over and over and over and repeated over and over and over, including a new covenant with Israel, a new covenant that's open to Gentiles, and that there would be a kingdom established on earth that's defined and described in great detail in the Old Testament. An actual earthly kingdom where Israel would be saved, where believers would be bodily raised from the dead, where the Messiah would set up his throne in Jerusalem, and from there the Messiah would rule the world. The world would be filled with knowledge and filled with peace, and he would rule with a rod of iron and righteousness and glory. He understands the Messiah. He understands the Messiah will bring a kingdom, and so he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Dismas doesn't expect Jesus to survive crucifixion. He knows that Jesus would die, but then he would rise again and at the resurrection would bring his kingdom. That's a pretty good understanding of the role of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. So Dismas has come to a vast understanding of who Christ is. He understands that he's the Messiah. He's God's anointed, the chosen king. He's going to bring forth a kingdom. He understands that Jesus is righteous. He understands that he's a savior. He understands that Jesus is going to die and rise again. He's going to come in his kingdom. He's going to bring the saints that belong to him and Dismas says, I want to be one of them too. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the answer that Jesus gives him is astonishing. In verse 43, he says to him, truly, I say to you. Truly, I say to you. Why does he add the truly part? Because it's hard to believe. It's impossible to believe. Dismas is hanging there on the cross and Jesus says, truly, I say to you. Truly, I say to you. Because it's just too hard to believe. Truly, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Does he have a right to be in paradise with Christ? What had he done to earn it? Nothing. He'd be dead before he could go out and find anything to do to earn God's favor. And that's grace. That's the grace that comes through the cross. And as our Eastern brothers and sisters have pointing out to us, when we think of Jesus on the cross as a decision to be made, what we make of the scene? Is the guy hanging there just a guy to make fun of? Or is he the king? Is he the king or not? And if he is the king, we have to follow Dismas's example to acknowledge our own sin, to compare that to Jesus and to see that Jesus is sinless. Not only sinless, but the source of forgiveness. And then finally, if we think that Jesus is king, we have to look for his coming kingdom to be received into it. In Jesus' name, amen.